Luke chapter 19 is our passage this morning. Luke 19, verse 11 through 27. I'll be reading the parable of the ten minas in preparation for next week's uh, beginning of Easter week, Holy Week, as Jesus goes into Jerusalem on a donkey. But right before he went into Jerusalem, he gave this parable on his journey from Jericho to Jerusalem, which was 17 miles long. I imagine that he stopped on his journey before he made this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he said these words to his people, to his disciples. So Luke 19, verse 11 from the ESV translation, I read. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to, to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first man before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And he said, Jesus said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them. Before me, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, there's nothing like the excitement of preparing for a baby. And I've had the privilege to prepare for a baby four times. When we found out that Stephanie was pregnant, we immediately began to prepare, make preparations. She began to eat better. Uh, She began to to have to watch what she ate and also slept more and was really cautious of what she was doing. Even exerting too much effort would be too much on her. So she was very careful physically. And I had to make some adjustments. I had to turn in my man room into a nursery. (laughs) And some dads have to do that or you have to turn in uh, some other kind of office into a nursery. You may also have to Uh, Prepare by painting a room, whether pink or blue, whatever uh, color you decide for your child. Uh, You may also have to uh, get certain gifts and do baby showers. Uh, All these things add to the anticipation, the expectation, and the excitement of this baby to come. 
And then when the baby comes, it's, it's scary and exciting all at the same time. I bring this up because Jesus, he told this parable to his disciples, and he said, you should expect me to leave and to return. You should prepare and make preparations for when I do return. And even though we don't know, like we do when we have children, we don't know when Jesus is going to return, we all need to be prepared and make the the proper preparations for when he does come. And that's exactly what this message is all about. And as he gave this parable, again, they were on their way from Jericho to Jerusalem where he was about to ride into his triumphal entry into Holy Passion Week where he would later be betrayed and crucified. He would die and rise again. These are the words that Jesus said right as they were going into Jerusalem. And he stopped them in their tracks on their journey. And I believe he gave them this parable to prepare them for what was about to come, this great holy week. You see, the the people of God, they were expecting Jesus, when he rode into Jerusalem, they were expecting him to reclaim the throne of David, to reestablish the throne, and to set up a political military kingdom. That was their expectation. Jesus gave these words to explain to them that wasn't going to be the case. But they expected this because they read about it from many prophets. One prophet, Zechariah, he said these words in Zechariah 14... Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, and it shall be inhabited For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. As the people of God heard these words from prophets before, as they read about these words from prophets before, they thought after seeing Jesus perform all these miracles and speak with authority, they thought, well, here he is. Here's the Messiah who's going to rally us to Jerusalem He's going to reestablish the throne of David. He's going to reclaim his authority and and, and, and our authority, and he's going to overtake the Romans. But Jesus, when he said these words, he wanted to manage their expectations by saying, actually, when I go into Jerusalem in just a short little while, it's not going to be what you expect. I'm not going to establish a political kingdom. I'm not going to change Israel's politics. I'm going to change men's hearts. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not coming to slay the wicked enemy. I'm coming to save the enemy and to save you. That's what I'm about to do. And then I will depart for a time and I will receive authority from the Father and I'll come back again and that's when I will slay the wicked and that's when I will reclaim the throne of David. But what Jesus was doing here was he was trying to manage their expectations and telling them that the time was not yet to come for all of that, for him to reclaim that kingdom of David. And he goes on to give this parable, 
And, and as he, he started, he said, There was a nobleman who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. I imagine immediately as Jesus gave these words, the people who were listening to him, they were able to understand exactly what he was talking about. Because in the ancient context of that day, it was known for kings to go off into a different city and to gain approval from a higher up official for them to go back to that city and be their king. It happened at least twice before And it probably happened during these people's lifetime. Uh, Herod the Great, you see what happened to him is he had to travel to Rome to be elected king of the Jews by the Senate. But he ended up assuming power after three years of fighting with the help of the Romans. After Herod the Great died, his son Archelaus traveled to Rome later on to receive the approval from Augustus. But he met opposition by his brother Antipas and a delegation of Pharisees. He, didn't, he wasn't able to reclaim the entire throne that his father had. He didn't give the proper authority from Caesar Augustus. And so as, as Jesus was describing this nobleman, this leader, who had to go to a distant country and get authority and then come back, the people, it registered with them. They understood it because that's the days they were living. That was the context in which they were living. But Jesus was telling this example, this parable, and then he went on to basically say, I'm not talking about Herod before. I'm not talking about Archelaus before. I'm actually talking about myself. Because when we go into Jerusalem, it's going to be different than what you expect. Then I'm going to be killed. Then I will rise again, and then I will leave. I'll go off to a distant country for a while, and then I'll return and reestablish the throne of David. That's what the parable is all about. And he's talking about that when he returns, after he ascends into heaven, when he returns and he makes all things new, there's going to be three types of people that he will see. He's going to find the faithful, he's going to find the unfaithful, and he's going to find the foe. When Jesus returns at the end of age... The first group of people he will find are the faithful. And as he went on to tell this parable, he described the first two servants out of ten who were given a mina. And the first two servants, they were very productive with their investment, their gift that they had been given. They invested it and they gained a significant profit. The first one, what did he gain? He gained an extra ten minas. The second servant, what did he gain? He gained an extra five minas. But the nobleman, he instructed these two servants saying, I want you to engage in business until I come. Now notice that it's the parable of the ten minas. Ten meaning the number completion. What that tells me is, is that this story was designed for all of God's people from that time and into today. The story of completion. Amina, it represented a hundred denarii. And a hundred denarii represented a hundred days wages. So I want you to imagine a nobleman who gave three months wages to three of his employees. And he said, I want you to engage in business with this money I've given you until I return. And when I return, I hope that you invested wisely and were very profitable 
with what I gave you. As we see here, the first two were extremely profitable in their efforts. The first servant, he gained a thousand percent return on his investment. The second servant gained 500% return on his investment. Both of these servants, they managed their investments well, and they gained a significant profit. And because they were faithful with the gifts that the nobleman gave them, the nobleman rewarded them on his return. Verse 17, he said to them, well, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in very little you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second servant, he gave authority over five cities. Now, I want you to think about something for a minute. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to come back, and I want you to have invested in the little I've given you, and as a result of that, I will give you a lot. Did you notice that? It's disproportionate. It shows to me the extravagant generosity and grace of God to us. We are called to be faithful stewards with the gifts that God has given us, our time, our talents, our treasures. We're called to be faithful to the gospel that God has entrusted us with by telling others about Jesus, by serving others, by giving generously of our time, our talents, and our treasures. We're called to do that and to do it faithfully. And even though it may be little, in God's eyes, it's great. And in the end, when he returns, he's going to judge us for what we did on this earth because what we do on this earth, it echoes into eternity. But notice the rewards that the nobleman gave his servants. He put them in charge of 10 cities and five cities. It's extremely disproportionate from what he gave them earlier and what they were able to do. But it shows our gracious God, our generous God, who gives lavishly and extravagantly. It's because he loves us that much. It also shows me that in heaven, there's going to be positions of authority where some will have authority over more cities than others. So we'll even see that in heaven where you'll have people in positions of authority, but none of us are really gonna care because we're all gonna be happy to be with each other and with Jesus. But this is one of those parables that really talks about eternity and what it could look like and what it will look like. And it gives us a good picture of that. So my question to you is, are you investing in the gifts that God has given you? Are you properly investing in it? Are you being faithful with what he's entrusted you with? This reminds me of a story years ago, years ago of a, a young man who began a small cheese business in Chicago. And at first when he began this business, he failed greatly. He was deeply in debt. And he was asking his, his close friend, he said, what do you think I did wrong? I'm, I'm in debt out my ears. What did I do wrong? And his friend said, you didn't take God into your business. You've not worked with God. And so the young man thought, you know, my friend's right. If God wants to run the cheese business that I intend to start, he can do it. And I'll work for him and I'll work with him. From that moment on, God became the senior partner in this man's business. And the business grew and prospered and became the largest cheese company in the world. You ask the name of that young man? James L. Kraft, who became the president of the Kraft Cheese Company. At the end of his life, Kraft said these words, 
The only investment I ever made, which has paid consistently increasing dividends, is the money I have given to the Lord. Kraft was faithful with what God gave him. And the moment he realized he was working for God and everything belonged to God, just as the first two servants realized, it was all a gift from God in the beginning. They were just going to manage and be good stewards with what God gave them. The moment Kraft realized what those first two servants realized in the parable is the moment things took off for him and the moment God blessed him mightily. You know, a few, uh, a few weeks ago, Stephanie and I, we met with our financial planner and we meet with her quarterly. And our financial planner, she, she talked to us about what's going to happen in 20 and 30 and 40 years. And we're investing in four or five 29s right now because we want to help pay for our kids' college. And we're talking about three weddings to pay for. And we're talking about other investments like cars. And, and then we're talking about retirement. And it seems overwhelming. But it's always encouraging to meet with her because she tells us action steps and baby steps to take. And she reminds us that... Look, you're, you're planning for your future. It's not necessarily going to happen today, but keep being faithful in the small things. And one day, hopefully, you'll be able to help pay, if not pay, for your kids' colleges. And you'll be able to pay for the weddings, and you'll be able to retire one day, potentially. You know, when you meet with a financial planner, they're, they're helping us to have a perspective, that, perspective that's future-oriented, so just like investing in the future for our retirement or college funding, more importantly, how are you investing in the eternal kingdom of God, in your future kingdom of God that is eternal, that is beyond retirement, beyond college? How are you investing in eternity? So my question is, who are you sharing your faith to? How are you using the gifts that God has given you? How are you being faithful to the gifts he's given. Well, the first group of people that Jesus will find on his return are the faithful, and he will reward the faithful. But the second group are the unfaithful. Verse 20, then another servant came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Have you ever heard in sports or in business or in education when someone says, well, he or she had so much potential? It's a phrase that's usually spoken about someone who failed to do what was expected or what was perceived by others. The words could be applied to a highly touted college star, the gifted but lazy college student, the talented but recklessly indulgent actor or the savvy business person with no people skills. It's the story of what might have been. What might have been. This person had so much potential and they didn't use their potential. We see this third servant as what might have been. It's the story of what might have been. A story of that person who had so much potential given to them, but they didn't use it one bit. But instead of using it, they hoarded the gift and they hid it in a handkerchief. Did you notice that? But why did the servant hide their gift? Well, it describes how the servant didn't really understand who the nobleman was. He described the nobleman or the master as 
severe. The word severe in Greek is austeros, which means austere. It means harsh. It means strict. It means controlling. In other words, this third servant thought the nobleman was a man who would get rich on the backs of others. He was convinced that this man was a selfish man, and he claimed that his fear paralyzed him instead of mobilized him for service. And because his fear of this severe nobleman, because of his fear, it, it, it really paralyzed him where he didn't use his gifts one bit. And because of that, look what the results were. Verse 22 and 23. The nobleman said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. What is Jesus saying here to the third servant? He's saying, if you really believed that I was a harsh man, you should have worked even harder knowing that I would come and discipline you. He was telling the man to judge according to his own statement. If the man really believed in what he said he believed, then you better believe that he would have worked harder to gain a profit out of fear that the nobleman would come and kill him or throw him in jail or impose a harsh, strict standard on him. So Jesus ended up condemning the third servant, and notice what he called him. He called him wicked. The word wicked, it means incompetent, unfit, and useless. Harsh words, strong words, but it describes the unfaithful servant, the unprofitable one, as wicked. And look what happened to the unprofitable one. Verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas already. And Jesus said, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The message that Jesus was giving and describing the unfaithful one was don't hoard the gifts that I've given you. Engage in business. Use the gifts I've given you for my glory and for the good of others. Don't hoard it. You may have heard of John Paul Getty. John Paul Getty, at the age of 23, he became a millionaire after he graduated from Oxford. His father was in the oil industry, and he ended up working with his father. And uh, later on, after 23, he started just as a, an oil uh, rigger. That's what he was doing. He was working in the oil factory, and he ended up buying several different oil factories and companies. He also ended up investing in real estate. And at one point, he was known for being the world's richest man when he became a billionaire. But you know the other thing that John Paul Getty was known as? He was known as the most stingy man in the world. The constant request for money, it irritated him. He thought it was unreasonable that others assumed he would pick up the check because he was wealthy. He said he thought that the passive acceptance of money corrupted people, so he rarely gave money away. You know what he wore? 
He wore rumpled suits and threadbare sweaters. He installed a payphone to be used by guests when they came to, came to visit in his home. A payphone. He made them pay to make a call. But the worst about Getty was that his 16-year-old grandson was kidnapped by an Italian gang of thugs. And they had a $17 million ransom to his grandson. Guess what Getty did? He refused to pay that ransom. And after receiving a box in the mail of his grandson's ear that had been cut off, he decided to pay a little bit of that ransom, only $2.7 million. And he said that's all the money that he could raise. Well, five months go by, and finally they find the grandson, and fortunately he had survived after being five months tortured and kidnapped by this Italian group of thugs. But when J. Paul Getty died three years after that incident, his children whom he had alienated himself from, and his five former wives, they fought in court over his fortune that valued $4 billion. And you know where most of the money ended up? It ended up going to the Getty Museum in Los Angeles. Although Getty had a lot of money in his lifetime, because he hoarded it, he lost it all in the end. The one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. The words of Jesus. When Jesus returns, he's going to find the faithful. He's going to find the unfaithful. And there's a third group of people he will find, and that is the foe. He mentions it briefly in verse 14, and then he finishes his parable describing them in verse 27. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Again, I want to remind you of the context. Jesus and his disciples are on the way to Jerusalem. He stops them, he tells them this parable, and he's preparing them for what they're about to face. They're about to face severe, extreme opposition, even persecution. And he's preparing them that there is going to be a massive group of people who are rebellious, who are enemies, who are foes of him and his people. And these enemies will end up crucifying him and killing him and yell out, crucify him. So Jesus was trying to prepare his disciples of what was about to take place, saying there's going to be foes that want nothing but to harm us. And what will happen to these foes in the end when the nobleman returns, when Jesus returns and the end of all age happens? Revelation 14 describes what will happen. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lord, of the Lamb. And look at this. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest 
day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Are you seeing what is described here in the end? I'm seeing severe judgment. I'm seeing an eternal hell. I know a lot of churches, unfortunately, are questioning whether or not there's a real hell. But right here, among many other passages in the New Testament, Jesus describes hell as a place of torment, of fire, of eternal separation from God. My friends, there is a real, literal hell. And right here, before Jesus goes into the most important week of all of human history, he reminds his disciples of what's at stake. He reminds them of hell. And he reminds them of heaven. And right here, we see it. And what will happen to those enemies of God, to those wicked, rebellious people who hate Jesus, they will be sent to hell for all of eternity, tortured for the rest of eternity. That's the judgment that the nobleman will give, and the nobleman is Jesus Christ. So I want to remind each one of us that when Jesus returns, there will be a day of judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Every one of us will face a judgment day. Every one of us in this room, every one of us who's ever lived throughout all of human history. And we will be rewarded for being faithful stewards with what he's given us, or we'll be punished because we never knew who the noble one was. And we were living our life for ourselves. This may have happened to you because it's happened to many people before. But after college, for whatever reason, I began to have some recurring dreams. And it's happened maybe five times in my life, maybe more. But this recurring dream was <laughs> I would see myself waking up and had forgotten that I had registered for this class, this college class. And the months had gone by, and all of a sudden I realized at the final exam that I had missed this class for the entire semester. And of course, what did I do? But I, I hurried to the class to see if I could even try to pass this exam that I knew nothing about. That may have happened to you. You may have had the dream. Apparently, a lot of people have that similar dream. It's kind of scary. But you wake up and you realize, oh, thank goodness that wasn't true. But what if it had been true? What if you had forgotten that you registered for class that you never attended, and all of a sudden you get this email or this phone call saying, hey, we have the final exam. Are you ready? Of course you wouldn't be. Well, we know that one day the examiner will come, and the final exam will take place. And so we don't need to be asleep, but instead we need to be awake. We need to be active and attentive. We need to be reminded that we are in the classroom and as we're in the classroom, we need to work hard and study and learn as much as we can about this great nobleman, this great Jesus. 
Because in the words of Revelation 22:12, he says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. He's coming soon. So just as you prepare for the birth of a child, just as you prepare for the final exam, so we must all prepare for his return. And when he comes, may it be said, when Jesus looks at us, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray.